0: Hi, I'm Ben Felder with The Frontier, and this is COVID-19 in Oklahoma, a daily podcast from The Frontier, taking a closer look at the impact of the coronavirus pandemic in our state. Today is Thursday, March 26th. On Wednesday, the State Board of Education voted to close all public school sites for the remainder of the academic year and transition to distance learning, following the recommendation of State Superintendent Joy Hoffmeister. Superintendent Hoffmeister joined me for an interview hours after that vote, and you'll hear that interview later on in this episode. But first, I called the Frontier's Cassie McClung to get the latest on COVID-19's impact in Oklahoma, including the increase in tests and positive tests, attempts to provide healthcare workers with more personal protective equipment, and more details on the governor's recent executive orders.
1: Hey, Ben, how's it going?
0: Good, Cassie, how are you?
1: Going good.
0: So, Cassie, let's start as we often do. What's the latest in terms of positive test numbers that came out today from the Department of Health?
1: Sure. So we saw another jump today. Um, So as of Wednesday morning, the number of confirmed cases jumped by 55 Mm -hmm. for a total of 164 and hospitalizations increased by 34. So um, the state now has 59 people hospitalized. And I guess I shouldn't say actively hospitalized because I'm not sure if they're counting overall or people currently um, in the hospital for COVID-19. And since we last spoke, two more people have died, unfortunately, in the um, Oklahoma City area. So there have been five deaths total in the state.
0: Yeah. And we talked yesterday about the governor's order focused on the 19 counties with confirmed cases. But we saw that number jump today as well in terms of the number of counties, right?
1: Right. Right. So um, we kind of talked about that yesterday, too, you know, that we'd probably see the number of affected counties jump up. So... When the governor issued that order on Tuesday night, it affected 19 counties. But today, at least as of this morning, it now impacts 27. So we saw eight more counties added to that list today.
0: Yeah. So an order that was established on Tuesday night is is going to continue to grow. We expected it to. That that was the case today. And so, Mm -hmm. um, you know, this may be a statewide order when when all is said and done. Now, at the beginning of the week, we... Reported that the state was going to increase dramatically. There was was their plan increased the number of testing that was going to be done Are we seeing those kind of increases and is that why we're seeing such a big jump in the number of positive cases?
1: Yeah, so that's a good question, um, you know Over the weekend we did Send and by we I mean the health department sent a lot of tests to a lab in Dallas to be processed so on And we do have 805 negatives in the state, but the uh, health department kind of stopped tracking the overall number of negatives, or I'm not the overall number of negatives, but the overall number of people who have been tested in the state, because as they, you know, partner with private labs and hospitals, some hospitals have their own contracts with labs, they've just started tracking the positives. And they do have the negatives for in-state, but that doesn't include... Private labs, so it's kind of hard to tell how much testing has ramped up. Yeah. But I can tell you, um, so we talked about this a little bit yesterday. On Monday, I wrote a story about the state's struggle to boost its testing capabilities. Um and over the weekend, Governor Stitt and other officials held a press conference and announced those four satellite testing sites that were expected to be up and running uh, this week. And then OU and OSU labs were supposed to be processing tests by the end of the week as well. Um, And the governor said, quote, by the end of the week, we should have all the testing we need here in Oklahoma. But as the week's going on, that's starting to look um, more unlikely. So what that story was about um, that I wrote Monday kind of explored the feasibility of that happening with the nationwide shortage of testing supplies. So, you know, like I said yesterday, OU said they were depending on getting those reagents. And OSU said they were expecting a shipment in on Thursday. So I might know more about that tomorrow. But um, as far as the satellite testing sites go, I kind of included that in my story as well. Just, you know, because the state is still depending on those scarce resources to boost their testing. And, you know, the state can build all the testing sites it wants, But... At the end of the day, it can't do tests without those supplies. So on Wednesday morning, the health department sent out a press release saying that starting um, Wednesday, they would implement um, what they're calling a phase one of the plan to roll out those satellite testing sites. So it's a limited rollout designed as sort of a test run for a larger effort. So with the rollout... Limited testing started in Pittsburgh County today with a hundred test kits and in K County with um, Quote limited supplies. Hmm. So it largely still seems up in the air um, Kind of what capacity testing will be at by the end of the week.
0: Yeah, and at that presser on Sunday I mean there were some reports, you know by state officials that we could see 10,000 tests and you know We're obviously nowhere near that. What are what have you gathered these mobile testing sites look like? How are, how are they set up? Do You know,
1: you know I'm not, I, I actually don't know yet. I haven't seen them. Um, I know since, I think it was, I said Pittsburgh County started today, and it looked kind of like, I saw a few photos, and it kind of looked like maybe it was some kind of drive-through effort, um, but I haven't really seen those rolled out yet since they are so new. But I've gotten a ton of interest from them, you know, people wanting to be tested. But it sounds like, you know, testing is still going to be pretty, Prioritize at least early on into this effort.
0: Yeah, I'm really curious to see what this looks like in Oklahoma City and Tulsa. I I mean, this idea that if if it is like kind of a drive through thing, I I would imagine you're going to have many members of the public who, who are going to want to come and take advantage of this. And you wonder if they're going to have that capacity or how they're going to structure that. Now, Cassie, you mentioned that we don't, we no longer know how many tests are being performed. So we've really kind of lost now our ability to kind of track the rate, right? And that's, we've talked about that's. You know, that's, that's only part of the story because it doesn't necessarily tell you how many Oklahomans are uh, in, infected because, you know, a lot of people may may very well be and don't have, haven't had a test done yet. But we, we've really kind of gone away from actually being able to track that rate. Is that, is that important at all?
1: I think so. Um, you know, it's important to know how many people are being tested because that speaks a lot to the state's testing capabilities. So, you know, we can have right now... Like I said earlier, there's 164 confirmed cases in the state, but out of how many tests, you know, is it out of 1,000, 164 coming back? I just – it's important – you know, experts have said it's important to know what kind of battle – the state's facing and what the scope
0: is. Cassie, another important thing that we're looking for this week is personal protection equipment for healthcare workers. The governor also said that uh, you know that we should be you know seeing that increase, uh, especially coming from the strategic national stockpile. Now, I should say that as we're recording this, there are some reports that that's being delayed because of some audits. So I don't have the, the full information right now, and there probably will be more information out by the time uh, listeners are hearing this podcast. But uh, refresh our memory. What did the governor say about... About PPE earlier this week in terms of what we should be able to expect.
1: Sure so earlier this week as you said um, hospitals in the states they're still getting supplies in from that uh, national stockpile but officials did say earlier this week that there was just over nine days of PPE on hand and that the supply varies by location so in the rural hospitals um, they're probably gonna be a little bit tighter on supply. But they did say the health department was working to deliver those resources from the federal government. Yeah. So today we saw on the Oklahoma and we saw Nolan Clay report, and this was less than an hour ago, that uh, the state is holding that stock of personal protection equipment from the strategic national stockpile until an audit is done. And we don't have a lot of details on that yet or what might have triggered that, but um, what the... What EMSA is saying now is apparently there were some inconsistencies or inaccuracies in hospitals reporting on their PPE supply. And just for a little background, um, so Governor Stitt, I think it was in the last week, signed an executive order requiring all hospitals in the state to report their bed capacity, you know, how many ICU beds they had open, operating room beds, medical surgery beds. And that order also required them to report face shields available, and 95 masks, surgical masks, um, equipment like that. So 92% of hospitals have been, complied with that order as of um, March 24th. So apparently there's some kind of hold up with how hospitals are reporting. And again, I don't know what that trigger is, but it's going to be interesting to see how long an audit like that would take and how long it might hold up supplies to hospitals that need it. Yeah. Well,
0: you know, we talk a lot about tests. We talk a lot about PPE, two important factors, but something we haven't talked a lot about. I mean you've referenced it in the daily statistics, but the number of people that are hospitalized, and, and I guess at the end of the day, that's gonna be really the thing that puts pressure on the system, right? Those that are requiring uh you know medical care, hospitalization, ventilators, possibly, those kind of things. you said it was in the thirties today, is that right? Or as of Wednesday?
1: Yeah. So we know, you know, like you said, there was almost sixty 60- People hospitalized today. And so, what I've been hearing, I've been getting a lot of messages from healthcare providers, you know, nurses and doctors. And this kind of goes back to testing a little bit. A lot of the testing right now is going to people who are already hospitalized because they want to prioritize those people because they want to know if they have COVID 19, because they want to know if hospital workers need to use PPE when they're interacting with them. So, we will see those hospitalizations rise quite rapidly as we keep testing because they're already in the hospital a lot of the times. Um, But talking to healthcare workers, they are putting plans into place um, in case thing you know, for I guess one, they see that patient surge. And I've heard mixed, I guess, reactions on PPE supplies. Some hospitals, I mean, every hospital I've talked to is running short and they're worried about that that supply if they're not already out already. Um, But I think, you know, a lot of them are depending on that supply from the state and from the federal government to come in.
0: Yeah. You know, one thing that may help is the governor order, the suspension of all non-essential medical procedures. And, and, you know, that, that may free up some, some equipment that may be able to be shifted from clinics to hospitals. We'll have to see, I know I was meeting with a, a pediatrician earlier this week and she had bought kind of a plexiglass, face shield for for mm-hmm. welding you know you know because she couldn't get enough of those uh, of those face masks so that was part of the order um we we talked about this yesterday and it was really just in the you know the hours after the order was established there were still a lot of questions and details to learn what have you learned today about the variety of orders that the governor issued uh, on tuesday in terms of how's it going to impact the state
1: right that's a great question so one of those measures he announced yesterday is going into effect today at midnight, which, you know, is Wednesday. So that is going to close all non-essential businesses in those 27 counties we were talking about earlier. And there's been some confusion on which businesses are considered essential, which ones aren't, and how this order is going to be enforced. So I talked to a spokeswoman with the Governor's office today, and you know, I was just a- asking, because I've gotten so many questions myself, you know, what if business owners' employees are confused about whether their business is essential? And the state did issue some guidance on this, and um, the federal government has some guidance on this as well. But apparently, the Department of Commerce is going to be taking the lead on hmm. determining whether Businesses are essential, and this morning, uh, sits Office made a a post on Facebook and Twitter, and so essentially, what it is is if a business is deemed non-essential, they can fill out this form. I guess kind of arguing that they are essential, and the spokeswoman said since that post this morning, and we talked this afternoon that she hadn't seen any requests come in yet, but I am. Curious to see, you know, how that argument's going to be made, and I guess how the government's office is going to determine if something is actually essential.
0: You know, we know we know of a few that are essential in terms of grocery stores and 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 things like that, but uh, mm-hmm. still kind of a lot of confusion. And as we talked about yesterday, it, it seems like in Oklahoma City and Tulsa, at least, that you know. When the Mayor Bynum, Mayor Holt, when they spoke, you know, their, their directive was, listen, I mean, there's going to be some enforcement, but this is not like, you know, you're not going to see National Guard troops or police officers, you know, going down, you know, door to door, closing up. I mean, this is really an appeal to Oklahomans to heed this word. Um, and they're really kind of counting on Oklahomans to, uh, to cooperate on this, because obviously, I mean, the, the enforcement piece of this is, you know, it would be too difficult, uh, especially as we're adding more and more counties each day uh, right. to, uh, to this list.
1: Right. I'm glad you brought that up, um, because as far as enforcement goes, that's another thing I asked the governor's office about today. And when I talked to them this afternoon, they didn't have an answer for me. And um, they said that's something they were working on. and they get back to me. But as of four o'clock on Wednesday, I haven't heard back yet. So um, we'll see whether the governor's office issues any more directive on that today.
0: Yeah. Well, more news that's breaking as we're talking, Cassie. Um, I don't know. I don't know if you saw this. Uh, So Governor Stitt declared statewide day of prayer, calls for night of prayer for those impacted by COVID-19. And uh, there is a release, it looks like it's going to be Thursday, March 26th, it will be the statewide day of prayer. Some Oklahomans may remember the former governor, Mary Fallon, calling a day for prayer when oil prices were plummeting. Um, So there are going to be some people in the state that roll their eyes at that. There are going to be some people uh, that look at this as one of the most important steps that we can do, especially in such a religious state like Oklahoma.
1: Yeah. I mean, if that brings people some peace and togetherness, I know, you know, it's been hard for people being isolated. Um, and you know, it's a hard time. It's an uncertain times. So if that brings peace and unity to people, I say, you know, go for it.
0: Yeah. And you know, I would say, you know, I'm not saying this is a good idea or a bad idea, but if you are looking mm-hmm. for this to be a good idea, you know, maybe this also brings some credibility, right? I mean, we've talked about, uh, reports that in some rural communities that, that you know mm-hmm. the public may not be taking this as seriously as as they should. And you know if the Governor is asking you know for a statewide day of prayer, that seems like a pretty significant thing or that would seem significant to those of faith. And you know maybe that maybe it brings some added credibility to the issue as well,
1: yeah, that's a great point. That's something I haven't thought of. But I think you know for the people who aren't quite on board with it or don't think it's serious, I think you know maybe maybe that'll change their mind hearing, you know, People preach about it. The governor pray about it. Yeah, it it could. It could add some credibility to that.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, Cassie, thanks for the update. Thanks for the information. Uh, Still a lot of unknowns when it comes to testing and and PPE. I know you're on top of it.
1: I know. And I feel like I keep saying that to you, that there's uncertainty and I don't have all the answers. But I think that's a big part of the story is the uncertainty. So hopefully, I'm hoping every day we talk, we'll have more answers for you. Yeah,
0: We're trying to provide answers, but we're also trying to provide the questions that we're asking and the questions that are important to continue to ask until we get those answers. So, well, hey, Cassie, stay safe and healthy out there. Appreciate your time.
1: You too, Ben, thank you.
0: Thanks. Hi, Ben. Hi, Superintendent. How are you? I'm good. So, Superintendent, obviously, this was not the decision you wanted to make. I mean, you've said that you're making the best out of a bad situation. Can you start, explain what kind of information did you receive this week or in the past few days that really kind of pushed you to to, to make this call?
2: Well, we knew our initial call was uh, based on the need that We have many people traveling over spring break, and we knew that having a two-week period where the schools wouldn't be open could help stall or even halt the transmission from returning students and teachers and support staff going back into schools. Uh, So that was the initial reason. And then it became apparent uh, in just a short week's time that if our districts were going to resume school at all... It was going to need to be through a distance learning framework and not going back into regular class. Um, We knew that we had to make a decision right away because districts would need time to ramp up and prepare, and we didn't want to make that decision later, and there isn't a way that I could see possible to make that decision week by week. It needed to be made now so that we could actually make the most of the remaining six or seven weeks of school.
0: Yeah. You know, sometimes in Oklahoma, it can kind of feel like we follow other states that are that are bigger and have a larger infrastructure on a variety of issues, not just education. But if I'm counting right, I mean, we're one of the first handful to go ahead and make the call to close school sites uh, for the remainder of the academic year. Did that, I mean, were you looking at other states and and how were you able to come to, I mean, I know you explained your decision, but did it feel like a lonely decision when you're looking at other states that haven't, you know, bigger states that hadn't made that call yet?
2: You know, that's interesting. I really didn't realize that uh, others have or haven't. It was just a matter of what's our capacity to be able to make the best use of the remaining weeks. And as we thought through this situation and sought counsel with the uh, education coalition members and um, just discussions that we had, I just, I couldn't see any other way but to act now. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a time where we need a decision and then we act on that uh, and make our plans accordingly and we will overcome the barriers that present themselves. But I believe this is going to be something you will see in other states. Certainly I was aware that Kansas had actually closed schools. There was an announce, uh, yeah. announcement by their governor, but then when we looked more deeply, we realized, oh no, they're they're actually continuing in school. And uh, that was a relief, and that certainly is something that we chose as well. Let's just move, make this decision, and move toward what we believe will help kids continue their uh, progress and hold ground until yeah. the end of the year. You
0: know, Obviously it's impossible to put out a, a unified distance learning program that every school has to adopt but there's there's a part of this though that feels like districts are, are kind of on their own or at least they may feel that way how how feasible is it that the state Department can of education can step in and fill that gap I mean how much of a resource do you feel like you guys can be in the coming coming months
2: well it's a limited role however this is part of the reason for kind of having a a a set time period uh it with a big, you know, a pause at the beginning uh, where we were playing defense with let's make sure we've got waivers in place for child nutrition, that we get that ramped up, uh, that we use the spring break through April 6th as a time to build whatever infrastructure planning for child nutrition and for the separation of individuals, um, sheltering in place, social distancing, etc. Then we are looking at a new phase and that starts april 6th with the deployment of distance learning so for for us this is the next part but i do believe in some ways it could be a dry run for what education may be required to do coming in you know in the summer or or in months uh, that lead into the fall we really don't know it's fluid it's dynamic and we're going to need to be Flexible this entire way, but by having the whole state on a particular schedule of here's what we're doing now together as a uh, a system of public schools, we feel we can better leverage those uh, resources at the state level uh, with everyone pretty much in the same place instead of lots of staggered schedules and um, this, this, I just think this will make it run more smoothly.
0: Yeah. Uh, Superintendent, I remember talking to you two years ago during the teacher walkout and you kind of saying that there's obviously some concern that if students are out for a couple of weeks, that there's going mm-hmm. to be an impact going forward. Well, now this is several months. I want to know, what is your, it's a two-part question, what is your biggest fear in terms of what the impact of this is going to be? And then what's your biggest hope?
2: Uh, yeah, so I would say the, the biggest fear would be that we don't get out ahead of this and we overwhelm hospitals and those who are putting themselves on the front lines as healthcare care providers actually suffer great loss and those who are seeking medical attention don't receive what could have actually, Save their lives, but because of an overwhelmed system, uh, they they have tremendous suffering within, you know, individually or within a family. Yeah. So that's my greatest fear.
0: Yeah, well, and I want, and obviously, I mean, public health is the most important thing led you to make this decision. But in terms of like schools, like for students, like yeah. if, if we get back to some uh, normalcy my, next fall. No. I
2: mean... So my greatest fear actually is that people don't take it seriously. And, you know again education is secondary to physical health safety and well-being and right now we still have people that do not seem to realize how this is coming to their community and that is a tremendous fear for mine for me because then later this this does impact how we are able to educate and provide teachers yeah and give uh, the kind of resources and support that our kids need. So, you know, we're, it, it goes back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Um, yes, education is, is key, but in this situation, it's secondary. Uh, safety, health, and well-being of our community and our children is number one. And now, if we have a, a more unified approach to how we're going to be uh, providing for those physical needs, then we can begin to uh, examine an opportunity to try and deliver distance learning. And it's not gonna be easy. It's gonna be really, really challenging and hard for families. It's gonna be a, a, a tremendous um, challenge for teachers and for schools. But I do know that this, this break has actually created a, created a, a lot of appetite uh, for engagement around connecting back with, t- with their students and teachers and um, the, f- the school family. And I do think that that will propel us through this period of time of some uh, learn-as-you-go and um, all of that amid a global pandemic. But when we come through this, I actually think there is a silver lining. And that silver lining and my hope then would be that we are ready... With or without um, the need to have distance learning, let's say, in the summer or fall, we are able to offer more personalized or customized plans of instruction. And the use of various uh, blended digital platform-based learning is something that I think Oklahoma has been behind other states in being able to provide for, for our kids. And this is going to shine a flashlight on those inequities, um, those areas where we have a lot of ga- a ground to make up. And we better use this time to draw attention to that and um, m- move beyond this with uh, with a strategic investment, whether yeah. that come in the form of federal relief or um, our, our uh, connectivity issues where business says, you know what, we're, we're going to make sure we've got low-income homes wired and our kids are ready to be served.
0: That's going to do it for today's episode. For The Frontier, I'm Ben Felder. Stay safe and healthy. Thanks for listening. I'll be back with you on Friday.